If you would please turn to the epistle of 1 John, chapter 2. <coughs> I'll be reading 1 John, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, I pray that those who remain outside of Christ would look in to the treasure of these three verses and come in. And I pray that those of us who are in Christ, who do know the Father, who are forgiven of our sins and have overcome the evil one, will find otherworldly strength to live by. To the glory of Jesus. Amen. I don't know what week we're in, 6, 7, 8, 1 John. But my hope at this point in this letter is that the seriousness of this epistle of John is not causing you to feel exhausted by the intensity of this letter. And I think that is precisely how John feels at this point. Because verses 12 to 14 of chapter 2 are like a parenthesis in the midst of a series of blood-earnest commands on how believers are to live. Walk in the light, not in the darkness, because if you don't, you're lying by saying you know Jesus. You are saved by Jesus if you are keeping His commandments. Particularly, the commandment to love your fellow believers. That, that is essential, he says, to fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Okay, you, you know what I mean? You get exhausted after a while. And now, John is about to make another stunning exhortation. It's right there in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so, before he does add that next exhortation, it's as if John is saying, let's take a break. Let's take a breather here. And he inserts this parenthesis. As if to say, okay, let me pull back. And make sure we're clear on what's being said and what's not 
being said. And that's how the parenthesis starts here in verse 12. Church, I'm writing to you, little children, because, because, not in order that, but because your sins are. Six times he says now in this parenthesis, I'm writing because. I'm writing because. Do you get it yet? Do you feel what he's doing? The Apostle John is in effect saying, I have been showing you some foundational principles of the true Christian life. The demands upon every believer. So so why is he paused now and go with these six repetitive and with three points in redundancy to get them through? Why does he do that? I think the answer is because he knows these are real human beings and that he is a loving and a caring pastor. John is not just some robotic disconnected, doctrinal machine. He has a real practical goal. He wants to help these believers along in their Christian life. And so, he wants to make sure, before he moves on to the next stunning statement, do not love the world, He wants to make sure that they are actually tracking with Him. And so this parenthesis here in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, it's like saying, okay guys, are are you following me? Do you see my line of argument yet? Let me me re-emphasize the foundational truths of what salvation in Jesus is because those are the things that I'm going to lay out again right here that I'm basing everything I've already said on and I'm going to be saying. Don't turn it upside down. These are the foundational truths that are assumed about you when I tell you don't love the world. When I tell you to love others. And I tell you to walk in the light. And so what he's doing in this section is he's comforting these believers. He's been putting before them some very difficult, strong doctrines about the Christian life. Walk this way. Obey God's commands. Love one another or you may not be in Christ. And so maybe John is feeling, he's realizing... Some of these people might be getting discouraged at this point. They might be feeling like, woe is me, I'm just a condemned, hopeless sinner in the way you're telling me to live. And so John says to himself, I'm going to reinforce the foundation under their feet of the Gospel. I'm going to make sure they're clear so they'll stand strong on that as they face each day of their walk. He starts with that very foundation. You are 
already forgiven. Believer. And for those who might be thinking, well, John, come on, you just, it's overspeak. Come on, you can't be serious if this is like the normal Christian life. I mean, for normal people, maybe for some monk or something, but for the average everyday Joe who goes to work in a factory or in his profession to live this kind of God-centered life, this is just an idealist, this John. And John fears for those people by essentially saying to that group, you do not yet grasp the original doctrine of Jesus Christ. So he's thinking to himself, before I move on with more exhortations on on how to live, I'm going to make sure that you really grasp the basics of the Gospel. It's no use going on with building the house of the Christian life and Christian living if the foundation underneath it has something terribly wrong with it. Because if you know about building and the foundation's cracked and the next earthquake's going to make everything come tumbling down. So he wants to make sure that foundation is solid. So he tells them that obedience in the Christian life is built upon... Not the other way around. You don't get obedient in order to produce these things. But the obedience in the Christian life is built upon certain foundational truths. I write to you, little children, I write to you because your sins have been and are forgiven. I write to you because you know the Father. You know Him who was from the beginning. I write to you because you have already overcome the evil one. John is saying to believers, this is my basic assumption about you as I tell you how to live the Christian life. He's saying all these appeals that I have been giving you and that I will continue to give you about how to live and to live a moral life in this world. To refuse to walk in the darkness, but to walk in the light. These commands about loving affections and behaviors toward others, these are not for the world. They're not for your unbelieving family members or friends or workmates. It would be useless for me to tell them, live this way. It would be wasting my time telling people who don't know the Father to not love the world or the things that are in the world. Because unless first that that person has been changed at the core of their being from the inside by these core foundational principles of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, then they will never get a clue what I'm actually saying. And if they think they do, 
by being good religious churchgoers, they will turn it into legalism, which is smelly sin in the nostrils of God. And so, John's saying, no, 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 no. This is for the body. These commands are for you who have come to Him and know Him, not to the world. And so in verses 12 to 14, he describes the very basics of the Christian faith. The essentials. And if you don't get these, then everything else he has to say in this letter is not for you. Not yet. Come to him. One other thing to say, because a lot of people, when you read this passage, I know what goes on in the mind. What in the world is he doing? Um, Because of the terms. I'm writing to you children, I'm writing to you fathers, and I'm writing to you young men. What's going on here? Well, let me just say first, this is where I'm coming from. I don't think it really matters. And you don't usually hear me say that. You know, I want to be a Bible stickler. Okay. I want to be a good exegete. But ultimately, I'm going to say, I don't think it really matters for this reason. Because what he is saying to those groups as he words it, I think are absolutely applicable to everybody, not just to one group. And I think John thinks that. So the reason I say that you read different scholars and commentators and people come down with different reasons trying to figure out and get into the mind of John because we can deal with his words we can feel it and sometimes you can only go so far with an author who's dead and you can't talk with him and so you got to try to psychoanalyze what is he doing it okay, I don't know but just what I think he's doing I use the word think purpose I think there's really just two groups not three little children is his affectionate term for everybody for old women for old men for teenagers for little kids middle-aged people, both sexes. He uses it five times in this letter just to address the church. Like, well, it's a tenderness that he's doing. I think that's the little children I'm writing to you that so you because your sins are forgiven. Then, I don't know. I'm just maybe then he's thinking, okay, I use that term a lot. I just want to make sure that the leaders of the church or some of these older men who have been in the faith for decades are somehow not misinterpreting, getting offended. So, okay, fathers. That's what I think he's doing. Well, let's make sure the young people don't get offended, so you young men. Okay. All right, that's all I'm going to do with that. Other than to say that it would be wrong, in my opinion, to understand what he says to one group, the fathers, or the young men, to not apply to every believer. Okay. Now, one other thing. John is redundant, isn't he, here? He repeats these foundational truths. He repeats it with a strong, getting your attention language. And I think he does it because he's a good teacher. Because good teachers know that repetition is the servant of good teaching. Every wise teacher repeats him or herself. It's good to repeat. I repeat. And I want you to think about it because 
You know, over the years, you teach in a classroom a lot, like I have, and you preach from a pulpit. So, yeah, I know, you already said that, but you repeated yourself. I know. And what I have found when those that get kind of like, you have repeated yourself, like maybe you shouldn't have, tell me what my sermon was about. Tell me how I argued it. And they usually can't. So we're not done even with the topic of that sermon at that point. So, according to John, what is it that every Christian should know foundationally? In this parenthesis here, there are three things. One, Every believer must understand the gospel of the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. For his name's sake. Okay, that's in the original, that's a perfect tense. Which means that's happened to you, and the ramifications and result of that is been carrying all these years up to this very present. It's true of you. Your sins have been and are forgiven. For his name's sake. That verse, that sentence is so huge. I'm going to concentrate just on that next week in the sermon. But this morning, let me just say the point here is clear that first, the first things that Christians should know is that their sins are forgiven. In other words, A Christian is not a person who's doing religious stuff in order to try to find forgiveness. A Christian is not hoping to be forgiven or trying to merit it. Christians are people who know they are forgiven. A Christian's assurance, you can connect this to assurance of salvation because it, it, it includes my sins are not counted against me forever. Okay. The assurance of that to a Christian, it comes through an accurate knowledge of the way that their sins are forgiven. It's right there. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. That's huge. That's why we're going to come back to it. But He is saying, in short, the person of Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, His person, one. His name. You don't like it if you get slandered in public. And if you're a public person. Because your name is dragged through the mud. Your reputation and who you are. 
Now, his name means all that he is. For his name's sake is the only reason you're forgiven, believer. The only reason a person knows and is forgiven by Almighty God for all their sin is owing totally to something outside of themselves. To Jesus. To His atonement. Christians know they're forgiven, not because, well, because God is God and God is loving. Well, no, God's got a good heart. So, He understands, I mean, I'm not perfect, no one's perfect, but, you know, I do some good deeds, kind of outweighs my bad deeds, and, and God's a good guy. So, of course He's going to forgive my sins. That's not a Christian person thinking that. Nor does a Christian think, oh, here's the basis of my sins. I used to be a dirty, rotten scoundrel. But now I'm much better. I've cleaned my life up in all these areas. That's the basis of forgiven. It's not a Christian. No. But for His name's sake. The ground of my forgiveness is Jesus Christ and His atoning work. Period. See, see, as a believer, there's the assumption, say you're a believer, as a believer, and we do this, believers can do this, okay? As a believer, to the extent that you walk around uncertain about the forgiveness of your sins, that itself is sin. A nice, church-going person who says, well, I can't really be sure whether all my sins, that one, this one, ooh, that one, are forgiven. I'm not sure. That is not a practice of true humility. That is a manifestation of a lack of understanding the Gospel of Jesus No, 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 but you don't understand, Joe. I'm really conscious of how ugly I am. I mean, I can even put on a good show around people and church, but I know my heart and I know know how unworthy and sinful I am. So I just don't know for sure. Is that wiped away? Am I clean of that? I I love Jesus. I believe that He's risen from the dead, but I'm just not sure. That's not humility. That's willful unbelief in Jesus' death and resurrection. John's point, right now, this flow of the letter, is before you continue to go on listening to my commands that are coming through me from the Lord to walk in the light, to obey His commandments, to shun living in the darkness, to live in loving behavior towards others. Before all that, get this straight. First, your sins, believer, are forgiven. That's the first foundational truth every believer needs to know.
believe grasp. The second foundation, the thing that he tells us that is crucial for us to know is how our sinning can be overcome in the battle of this life as Christians. I didn't say perfection, but fought against in winning battles. See verse 13 there? I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the Word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. There is a battle in the Christian life, and it's a battle of resisting our own flesh. Meaning the sinful nature that dwells, lives, sleeps with us all the time. It is a battle of resisting our innate sinfulness. And Satan and demonic powers and temptations or resisting the walking in the darkness. Or, as he's going to go on to say, it's resisting this, this, this allurement of loving the world and the things of the world. That is the normal Christian life. And this battle is not for non-Christians. It has nothing to do with a non-Christian in that sense. But it's for those who have come alive to Jesus by the Spirit. They're in Christ. They have their sins already forgiven. So his point is, when you came alive to Christ, something happened. You heard the truth from the Scripture as the Gospel's been passed down, which teaches you these things, that Jesus defeated the enemy on your behalf. Now we're just in this time of until it's all wrapped up when He comes back. But as you battle, the war is surely won on your behalf. And believers, as you're going to see in a minute, who have come to know Him, something happened in new birth. When they hear that, they know, oh, I get it. I'm aware. I have overcome. I have overcome. They know that somehow, mysteriously, they have been spiritually, mystically connected now. Tied to, put into Christ. He's in them. And they are in Him. And Christ, the one that I hide in, has defeated death and hell and Satan. He's come to destroy the works of the devil. And so we battle. And He says, You are strong. See that? Why? Because our strength comes from now confronting the enemy of our soul, confronting sin, confronting demonic power, confronting worldliness. It comes from already knowing they're defeated. I can't lose. It's mine. 
We are not strong in ourselves, but we're strong because we know the gospel of Jesus. This gospel of unearned grace that is so lavished upon us and the promises that are given to us that we tie our affections and our heart and our human sexuality and everything. We tie it to Jesus in His way. And we do it if we're believers because that truth doesn't just come to us, but we have been infused Inside of us, God has come in the person of the Spirit and brought new life by the Holy Spirit that we did not have before. And thus, we are strong. Okay. So do you see why, a little bit, why John inserts this parenthesis? I think it's because what he is thinking is this. What in the world is the point of telling people to keep the commandments of God? To love the brothers. To hate worldliness. Unless we have already been infused with strength by the Spirit in order to do it. Okay. And just, just notice one other thing for a moment. He goes on to say that the tapping into that strength on a daily basis comes through this book. Or what's happening now in preaching of the book. But in again, not really. Only if this book or the oral words coming at you, to the extent they are true to the book, gets into and the Word of God abides, dwells, takes up resonance, living in your heart, your mind. That's so huge. I'm going to come back to that two weeks from the day. Because John's laying out this battle plan of the Christian life, which is so tied to being strong through the Word of God. Take up the battle, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But that's the second thing that is crucial to know. You have already overcome because of Jesus, who now indwells you by the Spirit, and you have the Word, and He's won the battle, so fight it. That's the second thing every Christian is to know about basic Christianity. That brings the third crucial ingredient of basic Christianity. Every believer must have a personal knowledge of the Father and of the Son. Verse 13. I'm writing to you, fathers, or all of us, because you know Him who is from the beginning. That's Jesus. Because you know 
Jesus. You walk with Him. You remember how Peter said, no, no, I know, you may have never met Him in the flesh physically and shook His hand or hugged His neck because He's ascended. That's right, Peter says. But though you don't see Him, you love Him. And though you don't see Him, you believe in Him. You bank all your marbles in that person. And you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. He's talking about Jesus there. You know Him who is from the beginning. You remember how John began the entire letter? Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. That's Jesus walking around as a true man. Which we looked upon. And we have touched Him with our hands. The apostles say. Concerning the word of life. You know Jesus. And then again in verse 13. I write to you children. Because you know the Father. So, knowing the Father. And His Son, Jesus Christ. That John said in chapter 1, we have fellowship with them. This gets to the nitty gritty of what the Christian life actually is. It is a knowing of God. Christianity at its core is not walking around being a vault of theological knowledge. Of having all your systematical theological categories in order better than anyone else in the room. It is not merely a, I know there's a God and He commands the world with moral stipulations upon us. That's God. Okay, I know Him. You don't necessarily know Him at all. Christianity at its core is a knowing Him. The Creator. The one who sent His Son, Jesus. And knowing Him as Father. And His Son, the Savior, who died and was raised. This is how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. This is the core of what it is to be a Christian. And because you are sons... The whole context there is through faith in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Because you are sons or daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And the effect is what? We cry out, Abba, Aramaic for Daddy, Father. That is basic foundational Christianity. You've come to know Him as the Father who is a loving Father. He's saved you. You come to know Him as the One who knows every hair upon your head. You know Him because you know His Son, Jesus. And His words are in the Scripture. And you believe Him. You've seen Me. You've seen the Father. 
Why would you worry that so many everyday things as if your world will fall apart apart from the Father's will till you come to know He knows you infinitely better than you'll ever know yourself, much less anybody else. And because He reached down and pulled you out of darkness and condemnation and put you into the glorious light of His Son, you know He loves you. And you can trust Him. Everything. So John says to us, we know Him. I write to you because you know Him. And if you know Him, you've got to get the flow of this book. And if you know Him, then you will not feel that His commandments are burdensome to you. You will know His commandments for my good. You'll be thankful for them in your battle against your flesh which wants to break His commandments all the time. Because you trust he really is out for your eternal, ultimate good. And thus you know from the Scripture that He is about something in your life now to form you into the image of His Son. And so you also know you can trust the setbacks and the pain and the grieving in the trials, knowing you have already overcome the evil one. So to know Him, it is to know Him truly. It's to know the right doctrine in the New Testament about who Christ is. That's part of what this book is about. Absolutely, there's some right knowledge that is hand in glove with that right personal, intimate Knowing by the Spirit. But that knowing Him, which is different than knowing about Him, but includes that, is basic, foundational Christianity. So in this parenthesis, John says there are three basic things. Your sins are forgiven. You ought to know it. You have power dwelling in you. Christ has defeated Him. And now that's worked out slowly in your life down here to overcome the evil one. And thirdly, you know the Father. You know the Son by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. Okay. All right. Now I want to, next 15 minutes. Move out from the parenthesis, but include in it, and just ask the question slowly, think about it, whether yet you see the structure of the daily Christian life 
the way that the Apostle John is laying it out. It's the great question. How then shall we live? You see, in this letter, on the one hand, John keeps telling us Christians, do this, walk this way, don't do that. Shun that. For instance, chapter 2, verse 1, look at it. My little children, I am writing these things to you. Sound familiar? Okay, he's already said this. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, it comes at us, okay? Or verse 26 of chapter 2. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Okay, there's false doctrine. He says, Get an ear for it. Listen to it. And listen to me. He says, don't buy it. Really important for the Christian. Okay, So on the one hand, don't listen to false doctrine. Shun it. Flee from it. Know the truth. Oh, and by the way, something's happening in your life. Walking in the light. Shunning sin, etc. Okay. On, that's on the one hand, right? On the other hand, he says in our text, I'm writing to you. Not in order that you would do something, but I'm writing to you because you are already forgiven. I'm writing to you because of these truths that are already in your life. You've already overcome the evil one. You already know the Father and the Son. You're already walking in the light of fellowship with them. See, theologians, not just in John, but throughout the epistles of Paul and the New Testament, have always referred to this, and if you understand language and moods, the indicative and then the imperative. The indicative are are the facts of the truth of what a Christian is and what's happened to them already. And that indicative comes first. And then the life of the imperatives means the commands of the life Christians obey, but it's because of the indicative truth. This, this is what John is doing. See, look for a second at verse 21 of chapter 2. Look, strange how he writes. I write to you not because you do not know the truth. Huh. But I write because you do know the truth. And because no lies of the truth. Well, if I already know it, why are you telling me? Here's his answer. Because that's Christianity. That's daily Christianity. Don't ever get bored with the basics. It's a bad sign about you. You know, I don't know what a real bad sign is on Sunday morning church services all over the planet when the pastor's done preaching. And it's a bad sign, not about the pastor or his feelings or anything else. It's a bad sign about the person. What do you think about the sermon? Yeah, I already knew that stuff. John says, I write to you, not because you don't know it, because you do know it. 
And those of you who are in Christ, you know how desperate we are to continue to feed and to know it. And in all of its contours, the, the, the 40 years later, we see something that we thought we saw and we never did before. Okay. That's the tension in the Christian life that John, like Paul, is laying out. On the one side... John is intensifying our appreciation for what salvation in Jesus really is. And thus what he does is he deepens our assurance of our salvation. Jesus bought it all. It's already true of you if you're in Christ. It's done. It's over. You're secure. That's what John says. Your sins are already forgiven. And then on the other side, he goes on and he warns us about false doctrine. Don't buy into it. Woe is you if you do. He goes on to warn us to be vigilant, to walk with God, to walk in the light, to obey God, and to love your brothers and sisters. How do they go together? I think, therefore, just reading John, what he's doing is somehow he thinks, here with this parenthesis, that our confidence in salvation, in what Jesus purchased for us, to know how sure it is you've already overcome, he thinks that that will motivate our diligence to go on persevering in faith and fighting the battle. And that's why he inserts this parenthesis here at this point in order to motivate the fight with a strong confidence that the victory is already won. You see, to have been born again, or as John said, born of God is to have been enlightened and brought to saving faith. And if you're in the light, you are already forgiven. You do know God, the Father and God, the Son. You know the Gospel. And thus you are to know that you are eternally secure. If you are in Him, and if those three points in this parenthesis are actually true of you, you will never be lost. Jesus secured you. Okay, then someone would ask the question. And it is a really good question. Christians are to ask such questions of the Bible or of pastors or friends. Well, then why does John warn us to not love the world? Because if we do love the world, he says the love of the Father is not in you. Why does John warn us to walk in the light and to obey God's commands and to love your brothers and sisters? Because if we don't, he says, you're lying and you're not in Him. 
How can John say that if he thinks we're eternally secure? You get the question? If we are eternally secure in Jesus, because He purchased that for us, then why do we need to persevere in loving Him? Which is shown by obeying His commandments. Why? There's an answer. And it's really a simple answer. Though our theological world of evangelicalism is so confused. And the answer is because what Jesus purchased for us on the cross was not the freedom to not... How does, not the freedom to feel free to not love God. That's not what He purchased for us. He did not purchase the freedom to not love God and His commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So let's get this straight. I know I'm going slow and I'm repeating myself. I can do it this morning big time because I have a text. He did not purchase the freedom to not love God. What He purchased on the cross was the ability to go on now loving God. Fighting the battle. And that's loving His commandments. He purchased your ability to walk in the light and to love your brothers and sisters. All right, do you see it yet? I mean, this is how the New Testament speaks. Because of this, because of what Jesus really in His totality purchased, you are to walk that way. You will walk that way. You cannot help but ultimately walking that way. Sorry, I got excited. Blew the speaker out. So... One more time. This is the morning for repetition. John speaks to us. Put it in our text together now with the whole of what he's been saying. Here's the parenthesis. John, come on, help me understand. What are you doing? He looks at us and he says, Do you remember what I just told you in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7? If we say we have fellowship with Him, While we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we do have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. You remember how I just said that, John says? Okay, this is what I'm doing in the parenthesis. Look at me, believer. But your Sins are forgiven. That's why you will walk in the light. He says, you remember what I just said in chapter 2, verse 4? Whoever says, I know Jesus, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 
says, do you remember that? Okay, now look at me, believer. You, though, you know Him. You know Him who's from the beginning. He says, jump forward for a second to verse 8 of chapter 3. Where, I'm, where I, John, will go on to say, essentially, do not go on practicing sinning. Because he who goes on in a sinning lifestyle, that person is of the devil. But you, believer, are strong. And you have already overcome the evil one. That's what he's doing. You're forgiven. Let your mind be blown. You know Him. The God of the universe. Alone. Lying on your bed with your eyes closed. Because Jesus has overcome on your behalf and thus you have overcome the evil one. Oh, this is so basic every day. Christianity. So let me just close it with this exhortation. If you are a believer, if you're not, come to Jesus. Come to Him. He paid the price for the forgiveness of all sins for everyone who will have Him. Come. Now, if you have come and you thus are in the light, if you have come to Jesus Christ savingly, then you are in a battle. And it is a daily battle to overcome the darkness, to keep God's commandments, to not live in unrepentant lifestyles. It is a battle to be full of joy in Him, even in the midst of pain and grieving and crying. It is a battle to be loving towards other human beings. That's the Christian life. And John's goal in our text this morning of verses 12 to 14 of chapter 2 is to let the gospel truths fill us with hope. Fill us with courage to take the machine gun of the Word of God, the Scripture, to fill our hearts with those bullets in order to go on conquering the evil one in our lives. And so, believer, when you find that bullets are flying all around your head and you are at your wit's end, turn to this parenthesis. Turn to chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 and embrace it again and again and again and believe this news that is almost too good to be true. And as those bullets are flying, whatever they look like, grief, depression, besetting sin in your life that so grieves you. Haven't I grown up here yet? 
sit alone and you say with your eyes closed preferably all my sins are forgiven you're going to have a voice in your head and it might not just be your voice saying no and you're going to say yes even that one all my sins are forgiven and you'll go on to say father it's amazing I do know you I know you. Oh, Lord Jesus, you're so present right now with me by your Spirit. You are good. Oh, Father, today let your word as I open it work upon my heart. And you're going to say in whatever battles you find yourself from, battles within or battles without, I, in you, Jesus, have the victory. I've overcome and conquered the evil one. And that's what happens. Hope is renewed again and again. See, these truths in this parenthesis, they're the truths that blow the brains out of the enemy of a dark cloud of depression that comes over your life. These are the truths that give the death blow to those feelings of guilt for your sin that just won't go away but mess with you. And then the machine gun is fired. The grace of God by His presence in the Spirit with the truth of those words come. And your hope is renewed and your worship is renewed and His commandments are again going through this day. Again, they're not burdensome to you. That is the intended effect of these truths in our lives. That's why He says six times, I write these things because of what's true. I write. I write because, I write because, plus two more. So let these three foundational truths of Christianity, believers, sink into your soul and thereby keep being empowered to not love the world, but to worship and adore, to love the Father. To love His Son. To love the Holy Spirit. And worship them. And adore them. And find yourself overcoming the evil one in your daily battle against sin. Let's pray. Father, I simply ask of You to apply verses 12 to 14 to the hearts of those who were born again. And Father, I ask that if there are those who are not born again and can't see this light, 
turn the light on, change their life, let them taste, let them see, and let them flee to this glorious Savior, Jesus Christ.